0: The biggest thing that I could say is you're kind of going to have to do it before you're ready. And that doesn't just go for the students looking for a way to marry their skill set with their passion, right? Because if you're if you wait until you're ready, the time for it might pass. And the time for it if you're a business looking to engage a broader community and show people that you actually are dedicated to these issues might pass. And it's going to hurt you far more if you wait too long. Select
1: CT. What's up, world? This is the Select CT podcast, where we talk about the digital media landscape in Connecticut and what it means for young people who want to get into the industry. I'm David DeRoche. I run the podcast program at Quinnipiac University, and this podcast is a production of Digital Media CT in partnership with Quinnipiac, the University of Connecticut, and the Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media. So this is our first episode of Select CT, and it's actually going to be a little different from what we're normally going to do because today we're going to talk about social media activism and the many different ways that activism interacts with the digital media space as a whole. We're going to talk about how young activists can leverage their passion for a cause into something that lasts and also has an impact. And we're also going to talk about how established organizations can engage in authentic activism that actually seeks change instead of slacktivism or washing. How can companies be actual activists? And can they do that without alienating some customers? Or is alienation inevitable? And is that okay? Does it matter if you alienate some customers? Here to help us pull apart these threads are two fantastic guests. We've got Mercy Quay. She's a communications consultant and founder of the Narrative Project. She also writes a column for Hearst, Connecticut newspapers that you can check out on Mondays. Mercy, so excited to have you on Select CT. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Susan Katz. She chairs both the mass communication and the digital marketing and communication departments for the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Bridgeport. She's also a founder of Katzing Creative Ways, a production company she started in 1985. And I got to point out that she's got a master's degree with distinction from Quinnipiac in new and emerging media. So I got to give Quinnipiac a shout out on that. So glad to have you with us as well, Susan.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And I got to point out that all three of us are refugees from the print journalism world, an industry that uh, has certainly been impacted by the rise in digital media. Uh, but that's obviously a topic for another episode, but glad to have some uh, some former print journalists on with me. So let's start talking about Black Lives Matter, because this year, uh, for the first time since it became an, organi- an established organization uh, in 2013, was the first time public support has been a net positive for Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, and I think there could be an argument made that the digital media presence of activists has had a significant impact on public support. So before we sort of get into what it means to leverage digital media activism into something that you can turn into a career, I want to talk about how it might have happened in the Black Lives Matter movement. And Mercy, I just want to get your take. How do you think Black Lives Matter went from something that was a net negative just a couple years ago to widespread public support? What role do you think social media activism played in turning the tide?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to steal a part of my answer from something I heard Laverne Cox, who's a trans activist and actress. Um, She recently put out a uh, Netflix documentary called Disclosure, and it was about storytelling um, from a Storytelling about trans identities from a non-trans lens, and I think that what we've seen over the last six years of Black Lives Matter being established as a, as a as a formal organization is a great shift from who's doing the storytelling. Right. So at one point, the storytelling about Black Lives was happening from uh, the media, right? And I mean media in a couple ways. I mean. Uh, obviously, news, right? You know, the field that the three of us come from. Um, but then also in TV and in sports and in movies, right? The the entire narrative about what it meant to be Black and what the Black, what um, struggles in the Black community were like were coming from stories that were developed by, um, you know, white people who I'm sure meant well. But, you know, there, there has to be a conversation about what happens when you're telling a story about the community that you're not a part of. Well, in recent years, we've seen a, a more of a reclamation of, of of that narrative coming from black storytellers, black um, people in the media. Colin Kaepernick is a really great example of that. Where you know, whereas you know, all we've seen in the past of of uh, black athletes is either I am really active, or I don't talk about race at all, um, and. And what we saw from Colin Kaepernick is putting, you know, as a football player, putting race center stage, dedicating himself to, you know, disrupting business as usual and sort of personifying the issue and putting it on on people's dinner tables or, you know, more specifically uh, Sunday Sunday afternoon TV screens. Um, And then I think to your point, David, it's been a lot of being able to get to know Black activists on social media, right, the the, the fi- straight to face videos that we've seen organizers like um, Brittany Packnett um, Cunningham do on on you know Instagram Live or on Facebook Live or you know uh, Doray McKesson on Twitter or even Opal Tometi, who's one of the co founders of Black Lives Matter, we get a lot of personality from them on the on social media. So I think that has done a great deal for shifting what we understand the story about Black lives to be.
1: And, and it's, it would be hard to underscore that because it seems like as incidents continuously happen of uh, police violence against people of color, specifically Black men, um, it, it would be hard to say that the incidents themselves have turned the tide and it has to be some sort of public perception. And where does that come from? I think to your point, it seems to come from in large part to this very robust social media presence from people who are Uh, getting out there and really getting their names um, known and really getting their voices heard.
2: I I just wanted to uh, make a point on what Mercy said, which I thought was really good, that it's really coming from the bottom up, not the top down, where you have, and your focus is on students, you know, where students are really, and young people are really getting out there and they're giving advice to protest safely. They're, uh, creating all kinds of templates where you could send emails out to authorities to politicians they're putting up links for petitions for people to sign and very important is that they're documenting on video um, police brutality that's actually happening at these protests and I think that's part of this too that it's 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 coming it's, it has a human touch it has a human voice. Um, it's you can believe it, and it's really coming from the bottom up. Just getting back to the point that she said much earlier about the whole issue always just being reported out by the media in prior years. But now it's being reported, you know, you know, so so to speak, as citizen journalism, you know, where you really have, you know, there's a new term called social social entrepreneurship where, you know, young people are, uh, moving uh, ideas, social ideas and cultural ideas and environmental ideas. And um, some of them are even pushing products, right? Um, but uh, they're making transformational uh, benefits to society by what they're doing.
1: So I think the, the shift in narrative is critical, right, in terms of how uh, perception uh, of Actual people of color live, specifically Black people. How you know their lives are now represented is now coming from them themselves rather than white people who are on the outside looking in. So I think that's a that's definitely a huge part of it. And I guess the but the medium that has allowed that reality to exist is digital media, right? So now everybody has access to to uh, to you know create their own blogs, have their own presence on social media, and so it's sort of leveled the playing field. And so that has enabled. Uh, black folks to have a voice uh, for themselves that is not drowned out by traditional media outlets. And so I think that is a big you know part of it for sure. Um, and so it, it, in that sense that digital media then has been the thing in my opinion that has really helped uh, shift the tide in terms of people understanding what it's like to be a black person in America. So I'm just wondering if you are a person, who is really committed to changing things, right? Like whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's trans rights, whether it's immigrant rights, uh, the environment, whatever it is, whatever your cause is as a young activist, how do you leverage that into either something that can become a career, either through starting your own nonprofit or starting some sort of entrepreneurship endeavor? And Mercy, maybe I'll ask you, since this is something you have done with the Narrative Project, um, how do you think you can do that you leverage sort of this activist mentality into something that you can sustain over the long run how have you how have you been able to do it
0: yeah um so <laughs> slowly <laughs> and deliberately i think that um so to, to sort of fully answer that question i need to say that uh you know you called the three of us refugees from journalism and i think that that is that's 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 right i think that i i ran away from just um from journalism but not because i didn't love it right i, I wanted to be and i said this when at, at the launch event for the narrative project I, w- I knew i wanted to be a journalist when i was in kindergarten right i had every intention to prove out my life as a journalist whether that was a local beat reporter or um you know investigative or foreign correspondence. i just knew that i wanted to be a journalist but when i and I'm also a, a two-time alum from uh, Quinnifiac. So after graduating from Quinnipiac, oh, you are! <laughs> oh,
1: sorry. I didn't know that. I should have given you the shout out too. I apologize. <laughs> two-time alum, right here. Um,
0: after, you know, after graduating and starting and starting uh, my career in journalism, I was up in Torrington, Connecticut, covering you know, uh, local news uh, as the Winchester, Winstead beat reporter. Um, and for a while, that was okay. But what was really happening was I, was I started to cover issues that I could not have an opinion on, right? Because at the root of journalism is, is objectivity, right? And sort of being the, right. the, yep. the bystander, right? Like reporting it out to, so that folks who can do something do do something. But I, I, at a particular point, I became, you know, sort of tired of being the reporter and I wanted to be more of an actor. And so I uh, made the switch over to public relations because, you know, I thought that there would be an opportunity for me to use these, you know, the skill set that I had acquired, had acquired either in J school or on the job to, and put that to use for something good. So I dedicated myself to um, nonprofit public relations and from there, that still wasn't enough. I was doing, you know, more activist work on the side. And I started what was at the time in 2015, a um, just a conversation platform. Right. And it was initially called the Black Narrative. And I brought people together um, in coffee shops and in, you know, school cafeterias. People would ask us to come and do like commerce, facilitated conversations with, you know, their, their teaching staff or, at um you know churches for their youth groups and their parent groups to talk about race relations and and for me it was just like well how can i marry the thing that i am interested in that i am passionate about with the thing that i am formally trained in and for me it was just like well clearly most of the things the thing that the organizations i've been working with have the largest issue with is communicating through a lens of cultural uh, competency or cultural sensitivity. And so, you know, I, right. I formally launched the Narrative Project uh, last year, 2019. Um, and, you know, we work specifically with organizations who are trying to do just that, right? We, we have a goal, you know, if the organization is sort of, you know, we have a mission of X, Y, and Z, how do we do that with a sense of social responsibility? And, you know, for me, that meant launching a communications agency that specifically had a lens of anti-racism at its core.
1: And that sounds... You know, if if you just said this maybe ten years ago, even it would sound kind of kind of radical. But you say it today, and it sounds very common sense. And it's interesting to me. Honestly, if, when uh, I said it last year, man, it sounded yeah, radical. <laughs> right? It probably would have. Right? And it's it's amazing how um, how the the sort of our understanding of an approach to something can change so fast. And really, at least for me, and that's the purpose of this podcast is talking about how digital media as a medium to convey that you know, the, these, these pieces of information that then change our minds about things, how like amazing that is. So how have you used? Yeah, absolutely. How have you leveraged uh, digital media uh, specifically social media or just digital media generally? I mean, if you're trying to get organizations to have uh, a communication um, uh, system or protocol that is culturally sensitive How do you sort of use those skills, those same skills that you're probably, you know, teaching or showing uh, or providing organizations? How do you incorporate those same skills in your own sort of uh, like promotional efforts or activism online?
0: You know, right now we are Connecticut's only anti-racist and social justice communications agency. Um, And because of that, I have been prioritizing what our partners do. Um, We don't have clients at the Narrative Project. We only have partners. and, And by that, I mean, you know, we only sign on, organizations whose missions we believe in. Um, and so that's that's step one, right? If you're going to set out on a journey to commit to something, actually commit. If you're saying that you are an anti-racist organization, actually put that in your policies, actually put that in your practices. And so for us, the first thing that we wanted to do was, who well, who are, who are we going to work with and what what is the metric that we'll use to decide who we're going to work with? Right. And so we do a full audit of any organization that is interested in working with us um, to see if that if there is a mission alignment. Um, Is this a mission or organization that is going to um, bring forth some kind of positive societal good as we see it fit? Right. And I think our lens of what positive societal good is means having a. Key line of sight into what's good for marginalized communities, as described by marginalized communities, um, and so admittedly, at, at times I completely shirk uh, promoting our business <laughs> in order to uh, really get out and support these other organizations and doing and doing that. But what I will say that we do is we put out a great deal of messaging, and sometimes even just you know ten. 10 tips on understanding um, on understanding your next steps for um, being a trans advocate or, you know, on Juneteenth when everyone puts out their, you know, happy holiday, um, happy holidays, um, uh, their holiday graphic on, you know, 4th of July or any kind of holiday, we make sure that to incorporate a message of liberation or a message of, you know, racial literacy in all of those graphics. And so on um 4th of July what we put out as a narrative project is uh a quote from Fannie Lou Hamer nobody's free until everybody's free you have to kind of remember that and, and implement that in all of your messaging
1: mm. and i love that quote and it and i think the power of something as simple as that like getting that quote out there and um, reaching so many people immediately i mean it just it is incredible and i think uh watching these things unfold in real time has been uh, has been pretty fascinating so I want to turn to Susan and talk about how this sort of relates. This idea of being an activist, this idea of taking a stand for something, can be incorporated at the business level in an authentic way, in a way that uh, is genuinely seeking change and maybe not necessarily just done to appease the the uh, you know the zeitgeist. Susan, what do you think? What how can businesses be authentically uh, engaged in authentic activism?
2: Well, you know, it's a good point because. With businesses, you know, if they're, you know, without any offline action, if they're just, you know, using a hashtag, uh, you know, something, they just seem like they're pandering. And, you know, these minimal efforts that they do, uh, this is a term that's called slacktivism. And then along the same lines, when you have these companies, participating online in social media and you know that things they've done in the past or what they're doing currently don't align with what they're saying. Um, there's a terminology for that too. They call it woke washing, you know? So companies that have been successful, what they do, examples say, for example, um, Nike, Nickelodeon, uh, Fenty Beauty. Um, What they do, you know, what they did when um, uh, the protests started, um, they just basically shut down. Uh, They they, they halted all their promotional content um, when the Black Lives Matter movement really took off this year. a brand like uh, pantagonia and seventh generation um, when there was a whole climate strike going on, they closed their stores. They went dark on social media. They gave their ad space to the movement. So, you know, what companies need to do is they have to pause. They have to look at their social calendar and they have to listen to what customers are feeling and what customers need. Um, the brands have to express empathy and solidarity with negative sentiments and then really rally their audience around positivity uh, with strong, strong calls to action. They have to you know, walk the talk. They just can't talk. They have to be honest and transparent um, and they have to have a humanity to them um, and humanize anything that they're saying, because people are really able to see through inauthentic behavior. Um, And they have to make what they're saying clear. So say, for example, what Ben and Jerry's did, if you saw it with the Black Lives Matter movement, they posted something where they said, they wanted to be very clear about, they didn't want any ambigu- any ambiguousness in it, right? They posted something and it just says, we must dismantle white supremacy. And one person posted back to that, they said, you know, Ben and Jerry's, they called it just how it is. They didn't sugarcoat it. They served it ice cold, just like their ice cream. Um, so they, they made no room for, any kind of, uh, you're not sure. Um, And then what companies need to do to be successful is they have to share on social media how they're taking action. Um, People want to hear, you know, what are the brands doing to help out? What are the brands doing to give back? How are they tackling the issues offline, not just online? Um, Again, the company has to, walk the talk? Um, Are they donating somewhere? Uh, How much are they donating? Are they going to be regular contributors? Um, And how is the brand using this moment and this movement to do good in the community? They should be specific. If they're making donations, they should share receipts, like, uh, for example, like Legos. Um, this this is uh, all on Black Lives Matter. Lego announced that they were going to donate four million to organizations dedicated to supporting Black children and educating all children about racial equality. Um, another company, Color Pop, they pledged several donations and they encouraged their followers. To petition for change to call representatives to learn about the black experience um, another company an agency it's called 72 and sunny they gave out books to their companies uh, one specific book they gave out was called between the world and me and they're doing it because they're implementing new internal practices when within their company of discussing films and podcasts and books about the black experience. And you could look at HBO who pulled gone with the wind from the lineup. Um, So, you know, and that was just in the black lives matter movement. If you, if you look back to, uh, um, March for our lives movement, uh, the Tom's company, you know, the shoe company, um, like they made it possible for customers to send postcards to representatives right from their website. Um, another company, Headspace, they did this for like Mental Health Awareness Month. They offered live meditations, uh, sessions. They raised $200,000 for uh, an organization called Mind Charity. So um, without offline action, uh, just posting something, again, is just going to be looked at as slacktivism. You know, they're not really doing anything about it. And um, the companies have to think about and they have to plan because they're going to have good responses to what they do and they're going to have a lot of abusive comments to what they do. Um, Are they going to alienate a significant portion of their customers? Well, yeah, maybe they will um, maybe they will. And maybe that's just something that can't be avoided.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I thought that was interesting. You know, if, if that's something that you're committed to, if the cause, if, if the actual thing you're, you're fighting against or fighting for is, is a value that you really, uh, you really hold to high esteem, then perhaps it doesn't necessarily matter that you're going to alienate some customer. And perhaps a good example of that is the gone with the wind example, you just brought up with HBO. You know, they did that, and I'm not sure how much they actually publicized it. I wish I had looked into that prior to this conversation, but uh, it. it You know, very clear, quickly uh, came out that that had happened. And people were, a lot of people were uh, were excited that they were able to do that. And then, of course, there's other people who said, you know, this is a classic. How can you do that? But HBO taking a stand probably said, you know, it's not worth it to us if we lose some customers because uh, the value we gain from getting rid of something that has, that stands for something that we don't believe in. Is 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 uh, we value that more than just having this this broader customer base, which I think, you know, it says a lot. Or was it just to your point? Was it just some sort of like a woke washing? Was it something easy that they could do uh, to sort of, you know, just appease uh the zeitgeist?
0: Yeah, I think what's really important about woke washing is that there's a there's a great deal of it happening right now that it, that without you know, a finely tuned lens, you would be able to mistake as actual, you know, action towards Black liberation or the movement for Black lives. Like, for instance, all the murals popping up around the country, um, you know, Black Lives Matter way, Black Lives Matter um, uh, uh, street art and things like that. That's all really great. That's all amazing. But uh, an example of a problematic version of that is in Louisville, Kentucky, where Breonna Taylor was killed, they are doing a... You know something, something like a forty by fifty foot mural of her face on a on a basketball court. Well, that's really great. That's awesome, and and that's really great to see. But the officers who are who are responsible for her death have not been arrested yet. And so there's this strange relationship between what I would say performative activism and you know uh, actual activism. The things that will actually lend towards the betterment of black lives, right? Um, and I'm really happy that Susan, you mentioned this, things like calling your legislators on, on you know, the police accountability bill that's up in Connecticut right now, or things like um, making sure that you're voting, making sure that you're registered to vote because, right, if you're not registered to vote, you can't serve on a jury. If you can't serve on a jury, then when there are moments where people are being tried um, <laughs> on a, a, you know, a, in front of a jury of their peers, Who are their peers going to be if, you know, some small percentage of the black and brown community aren't even registered to vote, right? So there are all these things that I think are really important for people to invest in. And I think that from a business perspective, there are two things. Thing number one, you're going to lose some supporters and potentially some business. But time and time again, studies have shown that when you stand in like firmly in social responsibility, regardless of what kind of social responsibility it is if that's trans rights, if that's environmental rights, if that's Black rights, if that's civil rights, human rights, women's rights, what have you. When a company stands in social responsibility, they actually improve their business outcomes. And so when you make these decisions to to stand for something, the communities who believe in that, who who I believe are far greater than the communities who don't, will stand with you and You can see that time and time again, um, even all of the Super Bowl uh, commercials are leaning towards, and this has been for years, are leaning towards messages of social responsibility. And that's a really great thing. Just to your point, Mercy, exactly what she said,
2: that studies have shown that two-thirds of consumers believe it's important for companies to take a stand and that these companies have been rewarded, they get three times faster growth than their
0: competitors. So what Mercy said, I truly believe is accurate. And I think that businesses would do well to internalize that. I think that oftentimes businesses are afraid to take a stand because of this exact thing. But what we have found time and time again is that standing for something is not just the right thing to do. It's the business savvy thing to do as well.
1: So I want to give you guys, we got to, we have to wrap this up, unfortunately, but I do want to give you guys like maybe 30 seconds to answer this question. And uh, Susan, I'll start with you. Susan, what can a student do? A student who is um, either entering college or preparing to leave college? Cause oftentimes, you know, students are told to watch their social media presence. I mean, you, you should do that anyway. Um, but you know, if you are somebody who cares about things and you want to maintain a presence of activism online, are there ways that students can continue doing that and then actually uh, leverage that uh, when they're looking for work and say, hey, I care about this thing? Is, are there ways to do that, or is that uh, kind of a risk? And Or I guess the question to you would be, what sort of advice would you have for students who want to maintain some sort of sense of activism as they enter the workforce, specifically the digital media workforce?
2: Well, there's a lot of resources for students. So I say, for example, like the Nation Magazine, they run something called Student Nation, um, and they help student activists. There's other organizations as well. And what's important is that this online activism, you know, really formulates really good skills. Um, people get better at public speaking, at, at critical thinking. Um, they get better at persuasion, they get better at negotiating and it gets them involved politically. They stay up on issues. Um, they get involved in the process and it enables them to care for the community. Uh, where they can devote time to the community and stand up for the community. And they're making a positive impact. Um, and they're helping to teach others. Uh, they're educating people uh, about injustices or problems in the society. And they're developing civic engagement skills. So all of these skills are really good. And if done in a positive way, um, they're only going to help the students.
1: Awesome. Hey, um, Mercy, what do you think? What, what sort of uh, advice would you have for students curious about getting into the digital media space, but also wanting to maintain their activism online?
0: Yeah, I think that you can marry those two interests really well, particularly right now. I mean, I can't say this enough. Last year, it's, the idea of the narrative project sounded crazy. Right. You know, why would anyone want a communications firm with an anti-racist lens? Communications firms should be neutral, should be objective, should should just adopt the persona of the organizations they work with. Um, but now it sort of seems like the obvious choice. Right. Obviously, you would do, you would go about it in this way. And so I would say, first and foremost, the niche might not be obvious. Right. It's going to be a path that you make by walking, not a path that's going to be clearly articulated in any way. Um, second, I would say once you have that idea, continue to workshop it. Tell as many as of your trusted, you know, friends and mentors about it as possible. To get get all that critical feedback. I, you know, the, the the biggest thing that was useful to me in the early stages was put holes in my theory, right? Poke holes in this as much as possible because I want to be able to solve for those holes. I don't want any surprises once I do strike out on my own. And then finally, it's sort of the biggest thing that I could say is you're kind of going to have to do it before you're ready. And that doesn't just go for the students looking for a way to marry their skill set with their passion. That also goes for businesses who are interested in, in, in investing time into social responsibility, you're going to have to do it before you're ready. Right. Because if you're if you wait until you're ready, the time for it, if you're a student looking for to, you know, carve out a niche might pass. And the time for it if you're a business um, looking to engage a broader community and show people that you actually are dedicated to these issues might pass and it's going to hurt you far more if you wait too long.
1: Mm. I know we could probably talk about this for another couple hours, but I, you both have jobs to do, uh, things to do, but this was a great conversation. I'm really glad you guys took the time to talk to me. So, uh, Avoid fake avoid the astroturfing, be authentic. A lot of good things to pull away from this conversation. Uh, thank you so much Mercy Quay and Susan Cass, for joining us on Select CT.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank you.
1: On the next episode of Select CT, we're going to be talking to Todd Barnes from Sacred Heart University and Wayne Edwards from the University of New Haven about how to get from the university to career. So please join us. Select CT is a podcast production of Digital Media CT in partnership with Quinnipiac University, the University of Connecticut, and the Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media. Our producer is Justin Matley. Matt Warwood is our executive producer. Our marketing coordinator is Marvin Lewis. I'm David Roche. Thanks. For listening Come back to CT